Amen. Thank you, Connie. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ruth chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, it should be on the screen behind me. So long as everything's working. Yeah, yep, it's good. And we're going to start with verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. May God bless the reading of his word. So it's clear, um, we kind of left two weeks ago on a what's going to happen next moment. What's going to happen in the lives of Ruth, of Boaz, and Naomi? We, it, it left us in that moment of the scenes ended. Okay, is this the end of the whole story, or is it going to continue? And obviously it does continue. We do see something else occurs here. Um, and it's going to be, I think, an interesting time to look over exactly what it is that's happening within this text. So let's go ahead and continue verse 1. And then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? After everything that had transpired in the previous chapter, we find that the story does again continue. As we recall, the story left us in that state of limbo, wondering whether Boaz and Ruth would come together or what's going to happen with their lives. It's with this question that we come to the new chapter and the new scene. It starts with Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. She begins the conversation with, my daughter. Um, This has been previously seen as an endearing way for Naomi to speak to Ruth. She does not consider her a mere daughter-in-law, but a true daughter. This is significant since it reminds us that Naomi truly considers Ruth to be part of the family and because of that, part of the tribe of Judah. She then goes right into the conversation with the problem that is before them. Naomi wants to do for Ruth what any mother would do, and that is for her to seek rest for her daughter. To seek rest reflects what Naomi had originally wished for both Orpah and Ruth in chapter 1 that they should return home and find rest in Moab. This represents finding a husband and the peace and security that comes from finding a husband. Naomi ends the statement by recognizing that by finding a husband, it would be well for Ruth. This makes sense logically in the time period. Um, An unmarried woman without any offspring had a very uncertain future in antiquity, and so Naomi wants to steer Ruth away from that. We then come to verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the, flush, at the threshing floor. Now that the problem has been seen, we come to the facts. Naomi asks the rhetorical question whether Boaz is their relative. This is not only a statement about Boaz being a relative or even a near relative, but the relative. He is the only one who Naomi has set her eyes on, and for her, he is the one who must fulfill the role that she has in mind. The continued statement of the young women she has with us um, is in order to help us focus on the individual Boaz. As we saw earlier, the plural are relative, instead of Naomi saying my relative, reminds us again of Naomi's view of her daughter-in-law. 
She understands Ruth to be part of the family again, um, and therefore worthy of the familial laws, which would be reserved specifically for those who are within the tribes. Ruth has shown herself to be one worthy of being a member of the tribe of Judah, and at least this is the case for Naomi. Naomi then continues by considering what Boaz is going to be doing this evening. Um, In this case, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. The threshing floors tended to consist of a rock foundation or a hard foundation, which would make it easy to keep the grain out of the dirt and allow sweeping the grain after the winnowing. The way winnowing itself um, worked was it would take a pitchfork and then they would toss the grain in the air. At this point, the lighter shaft would be blown away while the heavier grains of kernels would fall to the ground. It is likely that this night had a gentle breeze, which was not too gusty as to blow both shaft and kernels away. That's why he did it at night instead of during the day. We then come to verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now that we know the problem and we know the facts, next comes the prescription, or what can be done knowing what we now know. Um, At this point, Naomi comes up with a plan in order to bring Ruth and Boaz together. As we will see, this plan is exceedingly tricky, as it could go in many different directions than the one hopeful conclusion. Still, now we focus on the plan. So right away we find out Some of the plan. First, she tells Ruth to wash and anoint herself. Scholars note that washing was generally the beginning preparation before a sexual encounter or marriage. The anointing was with perfume. Whatever it is that Naomi has planned involves Ruth looking as attractive as possible. This is the real goal of the first two steps with the plan. She then tells Ruth to put on her cloak. There has been some debate over this over the years. Some hold that the garments she was told to put on was a dress, and so some commentators hold that she is going down in a wedding gown. Um, The reason for this is the circumstances surrounding the term, and some look to Ezekiel 16, 8-12, which has a similar sequence of events of bathing, perfume, and dress for an encounter with a male, and argue that this text is looking at the same thing. This, however, is taking the term too far, as it more generally means a garment that covered the body from the head um, all the way up to the head. The ESV does a good job of translating it then as cloak, which is more likely in this situation. Ruth is not going out in seductive dress, nor is she going out as a bride. Instead, she is going to take her cloak along with her because it would likely be a chilling night and it could double as a blanket. There is also some considerations um, that this reflects Second Samuel 12.20. In that instance, within the whole, uh, whole chapter, we learn of David and how he fasted for three days, praying that God would spare the first child he had with Bathsheba. Ultimately, the child died, and though David had cried many tears and mourned, as soon as the death of the infant occurred, he got up, washed, anointed himself, and got dressed, and continued on as normal. Some see a similarity then with what Naomi is telling Ruth to do. Ruth would likely still be wearing her widowhood attire, which would inform others that her husband had died. It may also be the reason why Boaz had not approached her sooner, wanting to give her the time to grieve. 
Now, however, Naomi has come to the conclusion that Ruth is ready to take off these garments and to go to Boaz, allowing him to know that the time of grieving is over. At this point, Ruth is going to go to the threshing floor where Boaz is working. To go down to the threshing floor may be an indication that the town was on a hill, um, and the hill would allow better fortification for possible attacks. So it makes sense that the town would be there. So it is likely that to go down just implies that the threshing floor um, was outside of the walls of the town and further down the hill. Ruth is told to go to the threshing floor, but she is also to do two things. The first is... She is not to be known by Boaz until he has finished eating and drinking. The eating and drinking would put him in a more relaxed mood after he had finished winnowing. Whatever the plan was for Naomi, it could possibly be ruined by Ruth being seen at the wrong time and while Boaz was in the wrong mood. Um, It should also be of consideration that Boaz would likely be drinking some kind of alcoholic beverage at the time, uh, but there's no indication that he was inebriated at all. Now, this also may be a reflection further of Lot and his two daughters. Um, and that's from Genesis. And in Lot's sequence, um, the daughters gave him drink, got him drunk, and then slept with him. And it was from that, ironically, that the Moabites came from. Uh, because of the similarities, some see a reflection with that. Though two differences are seen with Ruth, who has continued to show Israelite Hesed, and Boaz, who has shown that he is truly worthy. So there is some similarities there, but in the end, most people just kind of write it off. We then come to verse 4. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I know all of you are thinking, what on earth is this about? (laughs) It's almost as weird as the shoe thing from last time. Um, After all this has occurred, Ruth is to make sure she notices where he lies down. Now, some might think it odd that Boaz would be sleeping on the threshing floor, but it was likely a common practice at the time. In this way, looters or thieves could be fought off. In this way, Boaz could protect the harvest then, which his workers had labored over for the last few months. Likewise, to observe the place where he lies reflects that Boaz was not likely alone. So it could have been quite the awkward moment had Ruth inadvertently went to the wrong man in the middle of the night. Naomi decides to keep this from happening by giving these instructions to focus where Boaz is located. Focus exactly where he is. Um, We then have a very interesting moment. She commands Ruth to uncover his feet and to lie down. This is much debated among scholars. In fact, the whole scene that is about to happen will be understood by what it means by uncovering his feet. Um, Some hold that there is sexual innuendo involved with the uncovering of his feet. This is especially true since during the time when men would be out all night in the threshing floor, it became a place of sensual rendezvous. Likewise, the scene may reflect the scene from Genesis 38 with Tamar and Judah, where Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, ends up tricking Judah into sleeping with her. Likewise, when we consider the condition of Ruth when she goes to Boaz, it does produce intrigue. She is going freshly washed and wearing perfume. Some notice that this alone produces speculation of being in the role of a prostitute, similar again to Tamar and Judah. Likewise, all the words expressed in this section could have some kind of sexual innuendo. So this kind of sensual reading of the text is possible. However, I tend to agree more with Bloch that this is not what is occurring in the story. Um, We will see why later on next week. (laughs) 
so I'm not going to tell you this week. Haha, <laughs> come back. Um, for now, I will say that it simply appears that Naomi desires Ruth to go to Boaz and uncover his feet, legs from the blanket or cloak. That's all you're getting. Sorry. We then learn that Ruth is to lie down. Notice there is no indication that she is to lie down at his feet. Instead, it is simply that she is to lie down without any relation to distance to Boaz. At this point, after all this speculation, we can be sure that Naomi is putting Ruth into a perilous situation. It is likely this reason, the reason, this reason that causes her to end with, he will tell you what to do. Naomi is banking on who Boaz is in order to make this situation work for the best. The truth is, there are three possible outcomes to this situation. The first is, Boaz will assume that Ruth is a prostitute. And take advantage of the situation. The second is, Boaz will assume that Ruth is coming for sexual favors and um, in this kind of prostitute-like fashion, and he will scold her for her actions. The third is, Boaz will understand that she is coming to him for a particular non-sexual purpose and will know what that purpose is, which, if our above interpretation is correct, he will notice that she is no longer wearing her mourning garb and is now wearing normal apparel, indicating that she is ready to be remarried. So, what's going to (laughs) happen? We'll find out. Verse 5. And she replied, All that you say I will do. In the end... Ruth accepts Naomi's clever scheme. Even though the possibility is rather high that it will all go awry, in the end, she has faith that it will go well for her. This may be a reflection of two things. The first is Boaz himself. He has shown to be a considerably worthy individual with the way he has previously treated her. The second is God, whom Boaz has credited Um, taking Ruth under his wings, and who has shown his hesed to both Naomi and Ruth during their time of sorrow and crisis. Because God has done this, Ruth can trust in him to make this situation turn out the way it has to turn out. So we come now to the main point. The main point of this section is to inform us of the problem and the answer to that problem. The problem is that Ruth is in need of a husband. The answer is Boaz. In order for all of this to play itself out right, though, will require Boaz to maintain his own worthiness, which has been expressed throughout the previous chapter. Any kind of response other than the right one will turn this situation into disaster. So I guess none of you have really thought about it from that perspective, maybe. <laughs> that Just how perilous that is. Um, all right, now this leads us to the application point. The first one is a selfless love. One of the first things to notice from today's text is Naomi. As we have seen, she is the one who instigates this discussion and is the one who has planned this grand scheme. However, the question we want to ask is, why does she come up with this scheme? Why is this being presented as it is? What is causing her to do this and to have Ruth do the things that she is going to do? Some may think that she is thinking of her own heritage and the progeny of her deceased husband and sons. Yet, this is not what's going on. We find no mention of Elimelech, nor his sons. Likewise, we do not see any mention of her doing this for her own sake. She does not seem to be interested in her own future at this point. So what is the focus of this discussion? Why is she doing this? The answer is simply for Ruth's sake. She is doing all of this, encouraging Ruth in this discussion for Ruth. We notice in the first verse that her focus is on Ruth. She holds the responsibility to find Ruth a home, a new husband, rest. 
As we've seen previously, it reflects back on the chapter 1 when she encouraged Ruth and Orpah to return to her mother's house. Mothers seem to have been involved with wedding preparation and matchmaking. Because Ruth remained with Naomi, Naomi feels responsible for Ruth's well-being. This kind of love for Ruth is truly remarkable when we think about it. Here is a woman who at the end of chapter 1 declared herself to be most bitter. Now her bitterness has begun to slowly subside. And there are two reasons for this. The first is Ruth. She has remained with Naomi despite Naomi's bitterness and despite Naomi trying to push her away. She has shown Naomi Hasid. And along with this, Naomi has been blessed through her daughter-in-law by being provided for. The second reason for this is God, who has providentially led Ruth to be exactly where she needed to be concerning Boaz. The text is not all for chance. Instead, it is clearly evident that there is some purpose to the events that have occurred, and that the one who is giving them purpose is God, in his hesed for these two women. Because of these things, we notice that Naomi's heart has begun to thaw. If it is true that Ruth is shedding her mourning apparel, perhaps we are seeing the same thing occur with Naomi because of what God has done and what Ruth has done. Now she seeks to do something to show her own hesed to her daughter-in-law, and that is to provide her a home and security through a new husband. That new husband is not going to be just any man, but a worthy man, and that man for Naomi is Boaz. So in this, we see love from Naomi to Ruth. What is the application of this? The application is how this love is self-sacrificing, focusing on the well-being of another individual above oneself. Naomi, by not thinking about herself, is focusing on her daughter-in-law's future and showing us the kind of love which we should emulate with each other. Husbands, are you loving your wives in this manner? Wives, what about your husbands? Parents, to your children, um, or grandparents to your grandchildren. How about showing this kind of love, first, um, this first love for our church family, willing to do things for others in the congregation, stepping outside your comfort zone, or even being involved with congregational duties, even when it's hard for us? Has anyone ever told you that this kind of love is a pivotal foundation for any congregation and for any family? Why is this? Because it reflects the same love God gives us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider this kind of love from what Jesus says in John fifteen twelve through 17 This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you, that you will love one another. There's a lot to grasp from that passage from John. Um, It is wise for us to remember, though, that we are friends of Christ if we do his commands. One of the commands he gives us is to love one another. It is not an option to love one another, but a command. 
Why? Because we are to be a reflection to each other of the love of Christ has for his friends. It was this same love which caused him to lay down his life for us, his friends. So that is the encouragement from Naomi. Like Naomi, we are to have this love for each other, in particular when it comes to family, friends, and church family. To be willing to love even if it is hard to do. Love is more than just emotions. Love is action. Seek out this kind of love for each other, knowing that we will fulfill the commandment of Christ when we do. Now the second point, obedience. Another application from this text is obedience. As we have seen, since Ruth decided to follow her mother-in-law, she has been very obedient. Last chapter in particular, she was obedient to both Boaz and Naomi. Boaz in regards to staying in the field and working where he requested that she worked, and Naomi in staying close to Boaz's female servants instead of his male servants. Now we find Ruth being obedient again to her mother's wishes. I suppose that this could be quite the challenge to each of us. We are all called to live in obedience to God. Despite popular belief, one does not simply choose to accept Christ and then continue to live however way we desire to live. Instead, God has called us to be an obedient people, giving us commands and informing us of the lifestyle he would have his people live by. This is the hard question for each of us to ask. Are we being obedient to what God has called us to? Are we going to be like Ruth, who follows in obedience, or are we going to live lives of disobedience? That is the question we have to answer, and it is the choice we have to make every single day of our lives. Granted, it will be impossible for us to obey at all without the grace of God on our side. Thanks be to God that He does provide us grace, granting us life from death. It is still our responsibility to not waste grace, not waste this mercy, and especially not continue to live in sin as though we had not been given this amazing grace to begin with. Instead, we are to check ourselves and make sure that we are living obediently to the Scriptures in relation to Christ who is revealed through the Scriptures, living in step with the Spirit of God, following the commands of Christ in our lives. Ruth is truly someone to follow in this regard. She has shown herself as a woman who is hardworking and who is obedient to do what is required of her. What is required of us? Well, we can be sure of two areas which require our immediate attention. The first is repentance and the second is faith in Christ. Many of you have heard of, who have heard any of my sermons, which you all have, um, have heard these two points before. But let's really focus on them since it is clear that the scriptures have made it clear that in these areas we are to show our complete obedience. The first concerning repentance. Some view repentance as being sorry or apologetic for one's actions. This is part of repentance. We are to show true sorrow for what we have done and apologize for the actions which um, have caused a wrong. However, There's more to repentance than this. In the Gospel of Matthew, for example, we learn from John the Baptist that fruit comes from repentance. Fruit is often characterized in Matthew as being our deeds. Hence, repentance bears a direct correlation to our actions and how we live. This is why to repent means to turn away from something. In the scriptural context, it means to turn away from sin and turn to God. The act of turning away means changing the course of one's life, to no longer live in sin, but to live according to the will of God. In this way, 
we are called to obedience. To live according to the will of God as revealed through the scriptures and Christ who is revealed in the scriptures. This means that we cannot call ourselves true Christians if we do not live lives of repentance from sin. This does not mean that the Christian will be sinless. It means that the lifestyle of a Christian will be one of repentance, of turning away from sin once that sin has been revealed. Will that mean that you will never fall back into that sin? No. It merely means that this sin, whatever it may be, will not be what defines your life and how you live anymore. We will all struggle against sin in this life. It is part of the sorrow of this fallen world. But we can be sure that we will have true lives of repentance, not on our own, but with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, urging us further in repentance and sanctification. One, then, can know repentance and know if they are in a lifestyle of repentance by reading the scriptures and living according to them and the revelation they contain concerning Jesus Christ. That is how we know Otherwise, we would never know what lifestyle is the right lifestyle, and we would remain in a sorrowful state of blindness. Thankfully, God has removed our blindness and allows us to walk with him in his will for his glory from now into eternity. Now, I do want to acknowledge that this discussion of repentance hasn't hit on any of the particulars. But this lifestyle's repentance will lead us through those particulars, whatever they may be. Marriage is a good example of this. We are told that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit to their husbands. In our society, marriage doesn't often look that way, does it? And even for those within the church, this can be hard to do. But we live lives of repentance when we do follow the scriptures in their commandments for husbands and wives to live in this way. To be a husband or a wife and not treat each other in this way would require repentance to live in this way. From this example, we can see that this lifestyle of repentance will affect all of those particular things of life if we seek out the scriptures which reveal the will of God. Now, the second point of obedience for the Christian is faith in Christ. While it is true that a repentant life will be a life of action toward God instead of toward sin, the truth is these actions will not save us. They merely provide the evidence of the Holy Spirit in us causing this lifestyle to be made manifest in us. When we walk in step with the Spirit in repentance, then it will be evident in how we live. But this doesn't save us. What saves us is our faith in Christ, recognizing that it is not what we do or what we have done which saves us, but what Christ has done which saves us. This flies in the face of every other religion and worldview in the world. We are all too often told that we are the ones who have to pull ourselves out of the mire to be saved. The truth is, we know ourselves well enough that we are not able to do this. Christ, however, is strong enough to pull all of us out of the mire if we place our faith in him. This is the crux of the gospel, that Christ died and we now live because of the sacrifice on his behalf. As as we consider the person of Ruth, and her willingness to obey, it encourages us to look at our own lives and seek to obey God where he has called us to obey. To look at your own ministries, your own life, and see where repentance is necessary, and follow him in obedience in these areas. That is the encouragement for all of us, to seek to obey God in these things, living according to his will, not in some parts of our lives, but with all of our our lives. 
Now let's lead us to our third application. Something to notice in this text is the amount of scheming that is going on. We've already covered a lot of the particulars of the scheme, such as the location, apparel, persons involved. However, it is something further to consider that Naomi is going out of her way to make sure that something happens. The scheme has a purpose, but still most consider it interesting that there is a scheme at all. Some might notice that the life of Ruth often parallels the lives of the patriarchs in Genesis. And if this is the case, then this kind of scheming should not surprise us. The patriarchs are notorious for a number of schemes. Whether it is Abraham saying Sarah isn't his wife once while in Egypt and again with Abimelech, or Sarah giving her maidservant in hopes of an, of an heir, Isaac and Rebekah, or the entire life of Jacob, and the great scheme involving Joseph. Schemes are all over the place. In all of those schemes, however, we see that though there is a human element involved, it still does not thwart the will of God. Let's look at the examples of Abraham and Sarah. God protected Sarah when Abraham lied about her being his wife the first time in Egypt by afflicting Pharaoh's house with plagues. The second time with Abimelech, God went to him in a dream, warning him um, to not sin with, with Sarah. In both cases, God intervened in the scheme to protect his people. And again, if we also add in there um, in regards to Sarah and her maidservant, you know, Ishmael turned out well too. God also provided there. Likewise with Isaac and Rebekah. The scheme comes from Abraham who desires to find Isaac, a wife from his homeland. In the end, God providentially led the servant of Abraham and Sarah to Rebekah. This is evident when we consider what the servant says. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Now, when it comes to Jacob, there are schemes aplenty whether it be taking his brother's birthright or in his dealings with his father-in-law Laban. In the end, we see many schemes, but all the schemes are ultimately used by God. It is Jacob's descendants, not Esau's, who inherit the land. It is Jacob who is eventually named Israel. While there were many schemes, in the end, God brought them about for his purposes. Now, perhaps the greatest scheme, however, in the Genesis narrative comes from the story of Joseph. In that scheme, his brothers attempt to kill him, but in the end, his eldest brother Reuben saves his life, and his brother Judah schemes to send him as a slave to Egypt. In the end, when the family is brought back together, the brothers are worried that Joseph, who has risen in prominence in Egypt, will have retribution. The words of Joseph, however reflect that the scheming of his brothers ended up being part of God's grander plan. Look what he says. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In all of these schemes we end up seeing something rather interesting occur in that God is glorified in some capacity. Whether it be through his direct action or through these schemes, God ends up providing providence in the midst of human schemes to either bring them into fruition or to protect his people despite their schemes.
It is with this in mind we consider the scheme brought about by Naomi. Knowing the schemes above, we should come to the conclusion that in the end, God will bring this scheme out for his own purposes and for his own glory. We do not know yet how the story unfolds for Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, but if Genesis is any indication, it will end well as it did for the patriarchs. So what is the point of all this? The point is, God is above our schemes and greater than our schemes. This is a reflection of the psalmist who says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. In his fury, saying, As for me, I have sent my king on Zion, my holy hill. Though the kings and the people plot, in the end, what happens? God's anointed will be king. In the end, God's will is done. He will even at times use these plots to show this is the case. We find it especially in the life of Jesus, in the plotting of the Sanhedrin. Though they thought they had won, in the end God turned their scheming and their plotting on its head, revealing that his will will not be outdone by men. I think that this is quite the encouragement for those who are faithful followers of God. Though others may plot against us, we can be sure that God's plan is still going to come to fruition. Likewise, when we plot and scheme... These things are not necessarily bad, but in the end, even with what we contemplate, it will be God's will which ends up being accomplished. This should cause us to fall on our knees in worship, knowing that God is greater than we are and that his will is greater than our will. It also should cause us to rejoice knowing that God will use us for his own purposes, his own schemes, so to speak, his own plans and will. This is a great gift to us in the faith, knowing that God will use us for his glory, use our decisions and our plans for his ultimately fulfillment, just as he did with the patriarchs and just as he might do with Naomi. So be encouraged by all of this. Be encouraged to plan and seek the glory of God in all of your plans, in all of your schemes. Seek out the will of God in your life as you make these plans and know that no scheme against you will be fulfilled unless it be God's will. No scheme or plan will come into fruition apart from the will of God. All of this naturally leads us to think about the gospel, especially when we consider all the scheming involved. Sometimes the gospel itself is considered to be a scandal in its own right. When we consider that guilty men go free, it is hard to disagree with that synopsis. Yet we also notice with Naomi's scheming and planning, it reminds us that God himself is moving in the story to bring about his own plan, his own scheme into fruition as well. This is the same thing that happens in the gospel, which is God's plan to bring salvation to humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel begins with our origins. God created the entire cosmos by the power of his will, or his word. Last of all, he created humanity to be his image bearers. In being his image bearers, we share similar attributes with God. Because God is a God of love, reason, he knows, can be known, has personhood, and shows hesed, we can as well. Likewise, it is from this we understand that there is both dignity and sanctity to human life. 
Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could have chosen to follow God in obedience in life or disobedience in sin and death. Humanity chose the latter and has continued to do this ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is also because of this we continue to accrue a greater and greater moral guilt before our God each day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before God. Despite all of this sorrow and all the darkness that comes from human freedom, God did not give up on humanity. This scheme, this plan, involves sending his light and his word into the darkness. And that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived died and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of his life, death, and resurrection we find propitiation from our sins. We find both justification, being made right with God, and sanctification, being made new by God, by his victory on the cross. We are given his spirit, which guides our steps, all because of what Christ has done are these things possible. As we saw earlier, All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. Our lifestyles are to change, falling in step with the scriptures, with Christ himself, and the spirit who indwells us, and all of this is for his glory. The second is faith in Christ. We recognize our complete dependence upon Christ for our salvation, recognizing that apart from Christ, our great deeds are as filthy rags. We recognize that we could never do anything good enough to attain righteousness. Christ, however, he is strong enough to save us and to bring us into righteousness and justify us before our God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. If one is disobedient in these things, there is only death. None can stand with, before God with their own deeds in hand, because his own deeds will only show his guilt. Therefore, the disobedient will find themselves before a guilt judge, guilty of all their sins, and because of this, they will face the wrath of God. For those who are obedient, however, there is life. Their relationship with God, themselves, each other, and the world begins to be redeemed. They can experience victory over sin in this life. Not perfectly, but no longer is sin the absolute rule in their lives. Ultimately, they will find that they are co-heirs of an eternal kingdom while they will experience the love of God forevermore. In all of these things, we give thanks. We give thanks for Naomi and Ruth and for the scheme which Naomi produces in hopes of bringing Ruth and Boaz together. We give thanks that God uses such schemes to bring about his will and his glory. We give thanks knowing that God himself had a plan, a scheme to save humanity from the darkness and to bring himself glory through his people. Be encouraged then to bow down to the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing his great glory and the victory he has attained, which he shares with those who belong to him, who are his friends. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you continue to show us in the book of Ruth. We ask that you would continue to lead us and to guide us evermore into your glory, into the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to lead us in repentance and faith. For there is no other way than if we are to just simply trust and obey in what you have told us to trust and obey. We thank you, Lord, for all that you continue to do. And again, we ask that you continue to be with us, continue to 
to dwell with us and continue to guide our steps, persevering us in this faith. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.